Good morning, saints. Let's stand together out of honor of God's word. We're going to read from John 15, 1 through 11. Please read with me. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. And I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, they throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit, and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. I have told you these things, so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. Thank you. Continue standing as we begin our worship this morning by singing, O Church, Arise.
as the God of sun is stricken, then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet. For the conqueror has risen, and as the stone is rolled away, and Christ emerges from his grave, servant good and faithful as saints and old still line the way we tell the triumphs of his grace we hear their calls and hunger for that day and with Christ we stand in
everybody here this morning if you are a visitor here I just want to thank you for for coming today um, and uh, and be sure to thank the person that invited you uh, and please come back next week uh, but uh, today if you would grab one of the next uh, steps or connect cards in front of you in the pew if there's not one there at the end of the service right out those double doors to your left if you're walking out there's a next steps desk please stop there let them know who you are and uh, we can get you plugged into some exciting things. Now, if you are a member and uh, have been coming here for a while, you've probably wondered why there is a chair up here. 
and why I brought it up and why nobody is using it. Um, and in the words of my wife, you're going to put it where? You're, that's where you're going to put it? Okay. So we wanted to bring this chair up here just as a reminder. As a reminder, we have been doing a Who's Your One campaign and encouraging you all to pray for those in your neighborhoods, those around you, and invite them to take their next step with Christ. Now, we are a church that exists to let people take their next step with Christ and encourage them to take that next step. That next step can be one of many things. For those that do not know the Lord, it can be inviting them to repent of their sins and to put their trust in Jesus Christ, starting a relationship with Jesus. It can be inviting them to church, inviting them into the fellowship of our community. It can be inviting them into a discipleship program. We've got D groups and life groups. You can be inviting them and taking your next step. Um, and then as we get discipled, it can then be inviting them into the mission field to go, to go into the local neighborhoods, to go across the USA, to go to the ends of the earth and take the gospel to the world. Okay, so we exist to invite people to take their next steps. And so as, as you look at this chair today, awkwardly planted, in a place where people are likely to trip over it, be thinking about your one. Who is your one? Are they in a situation where they are perishing and they need the gospel? And then praise the Lord that you get the opportunity to take it to them. So as, as we talk about foreign missions, I'm going to ask Mark to come up and then my family to, if, if you would, my family come down here. Um, I just want to say one quick word. If you all do not know Mark's Testimony. It's a powerful one. He said, um, I'm, I'm probably going to chop it up here, but um, the, him and Wendy and the, the kids, they had planned on going into the foreign mission field. They had sold everything. They were at the final stages of going, um, and then the Lord had a different plan for them. And be, because of health issues, they said, we're going to keep you back in the States and plug you into a church. And Mark made the commitment that time, him and Wendy, and said, said if we cannot go, then we are going to send. And praise the Lord, that's what they've been doing here. They've been sending folks to London, they've been sending folks to Utah, um, and today they're going to be sending us into Argentina. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the Browning family is going to go and visit our missionary friends and family and brothers and sisters, the Richards, in Argentina. So while I'm thinking about it, by the way, um, before you leave, please make it a point to stop by the desk out here. There are some cards, they're just empty cards and pens. For you to write a note, just a short, quick note to the Richard family, just encouraging them, um, and the Brownings will take that with them when they go. But I did do really quickly, just Browning family, come over here so I can see your faces. Um, actually, you know, I have a this one. Um, but uh, one of the things, some of us, some might look at this family and what they're going to do, and they're like, "Oh, why are we praying for them? They're just going on vacation. They're not just going on vacation." Um, and I would encourage you. Uh, to do as they have done, or they're, as they're going to do, which is, um, if you need to go, some, if you're going to go somewhere, you might as well go where we've got people. Um, there's a famous missionary, William Carey, you may have heard of him, and one of the things, when he went to the mission field, he said, I will go into the mine, meaning the mission field, if you will hold the rope for me. So as a church, we're not done with the Richards. They're still members here, and so we are holding the rope for them. And one of the ways that we're going to do that is we're going to regularly send people to go and just be an encouragement. So, so, Browning family, you go for us to encourage our brothers and sisters. That's why you're going. You might think you're going for different reasons, kids. But you're going 
to be an encouragement to this family. And so for that, we are grateful. Um, kids, the girls, Hannah and Kenley, are looking forward to hanging out with you, okay? So what you're doing is super important, so thank you, even though you really didn't have a choice in the matter, but still, thank you for going for us to encourage Hannah and Kenley. And, and Derek and Heidi, thank you for going for us to encourage the Richards uh, and to just hang out, to bless them. Um, and so uh, we're going to pray for you guys in a minute, but also I'm encourage you to take every opportunity, and I know you will, uh, to, to, to not only encourage them, but to come alongside them, take some video, and um, to, uh, to just encourage them and to also to, to see how we can do a better job at being a part of what they're doing on the ground. So that being said, um, they have some bracelets. So if you guys want to, here, let me, I'll just hand these to you. They have your names on them. So one of the things we like to do here, um, they, they leave on Thursday or Friday. Friday. So they're leaving Friday night. So what we would like to do is to, to lay hands on them as our temporary missionaries. So what we're going to do, they have bracelets on their hands. Um, if, if we could get you, if you want to, if you would be willing to come up and just to take a bracelet from them. And what you're, when you take one, don't take one if you're not committing to this. But if you take one, you're committing to pray for them while they're going. It actually has the, their name on the bracelet. You're committing to pray for them while they are gone and to ask about the trip when they get back, okay? So um, if you would, let's, uh, let's go ahead and stand uh, for our time of prayer, for a commissioning prayer. And if you would, if you'd be willing, would you come forward now and grab a bracelet committing to pray um, for, this, for, for this family? I'll give you a moment to come forward and grab a bracelet. And then if you can get close enough to them, um, let's gather around this family. And if you can t reach out and touch somebody and feel comfortable, by all means, let's, let's lay hands on them as we send them. And this is, this is not something that I'm doing. This is not something the elders are doing. This is something the church is doing. So let's all participate together and all pray together for this family. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for letting us be a part of the Great Commission. Thank you uh, individually for those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been commissioned to go and to bring the gospel to the nations. Lord, thank you for this family who have uh, been willing to, to take maybe vacation time and to, take, and to go through great efforts to travel a long distance, Lord, to be an encouragement to this family. Lord, we pray because they have, their hearts are desiring to, obe to, be, to obey you, we pray that you would go with them. Lord, that you would keep them safe but Lord, that you would give them boldness, Lord, to, to ask hard questions of the Richards, to maybe to, to encourage them in, in ways that might be awkward or strange, but Lord, for the sake of the kingdom, we pray that they would be an energizer through the Holy Spirit and the fellowship that they have together. Lord, we pray that as they're on planes, in cars, on trains, or however they, they, they um, move, we pray, Lord, that you keep them safe, but also that you give them opportunities. There are so many millions there in Buenos Aires, who do not know the gospel, do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that this family would be a shining light to those uh, people. We pray for um, that they'd be encouragement to the Richard family, and Lord, that they would come back excited, and that, um, that we would get a, a taste of the, uh, of the missionary fervor that, that the Brownings have, that the Richards have. Lord, that it would spread throughout this church, and that we would be able to send more and more people 
uh, because we have so many Christians here and there are so many places that we need to go. So help us, we pray. Help them and bring them back to us that they may be encouragement to us again. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. settled back into your spot let's stand as we continue to worship uh, as we sing a mighty fortress is our God
have it, take this opportunity now uh, to get your mind and your heart ready for the message.
confesses that Christ is Lord. That's why this chair's here. There's a heart that occupies a body that should be sitting in this chair. So we have a one. So we send families, both short-term, as we're sending the Brownings for a week, and long-term, as the Richards have given their lives, until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. Amen. Well, um, we're going to be uh, continuing our series in Isaiah this week. Um, today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 46. So if you want to turn there, um, if you're going to use, if you would like to use a, a pew hymnal or pew Bible in front of you, uh, this is page 496. But we're looking at Psalm 46 together. We're going to be looking at the God who is there. For you. This is a familiar text to mo many of us. If you grew up in the church, you may have even memorized it. Um, and so when we read it in a moment, it may seem a little strange, um, especially if you memorized it in a different English translation. Um, but we'll walk through that together. But uh, I wanted to spend a moment just thinking about the word trouble. That word trouble, when we use it, the definition changes from one person to the next. It changes throughout your life even from one stage to the next. Children who are with us this morning, you know this word well. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe less well than I do, but you know it well. You understand trouble to be something that you have coming because you've disobeyed your parents. And oftentimes trouble seems like something that's someone else's fault. Can I get an amen, kids? It's, um, if your mean parents wouldn't have all these rules and then wouldn't, wouldn't enforce those rules, then you wouldn't be in trouble, right, kids? Maybe when you get older, you have other kinds of trouble. 
you might have uh, you might have legal trouble. Um, that may be some people's some people's experience, where you may have made a, a maybe a foolish decision or broken the law in some way, and you find yourself in legal trouble. You might have family trouble. There's some kind of strife in your family, marriage trouble. You may have health trouble. That word sort of changes as we go through our, our lives. And, but in all situations, we have an inclination to misunderstand that trouble, and we have one who is with us in that trouble. Our misunderstanding of the trouble is a product of the fall. The trouble itself is a product of the fall and our misunderstanding of it. So today, I want to look on the one, and I want us to, together to look on the one who is our help in times of trouble. So hopefully you found Isaiah 46. I'm going to read it aloud together. You read it quietly uh, along with me to yourself. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid, though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the sea, though its waters roar, excuse me, though its water roars and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil, Selah. There is a river, its streams delight the city of God the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations rage, kingdoms topple. The earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. Come, see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. Stop your fighting and know that I am God. Exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. The Lord of armies is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Let's pray. Lord, you are our refuge and strength. May you be found in our trouble as we hear from your word today. And we pray these in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, if you maybe you grew up in church, you might have memorized this in a different translation, so there's a couple of words you were expecting to hear and didn't. And one is that word, that phrase, a very present help, which the CSB has translated a helper who is always found, partly because very present. How can you, you either present or you're not? It's kind of like being sort of pregnant. You just, you are or you aren't. So how do we understand a very present God? Well, um, the CSB, the, the, the translators of the CSB help us a little bit here. Um, by saying a very is always found. That word in the Hebrew that we translate found in the CSB or, or present in perhaps the NIV or the KJV um, 
it's, it's noticed. It's, it's not just present. It's not just like in the room. It's noticed. It's found. It's perceived, his presence. And when, when, when is he found? He's, he's very present. He's always found. Oh, uh, that very present, very present, always found. And I thought for some time about that word very or always. Um, the older translations that very um, and, and the phrase itself indicates either God, and I, and I, I struggled with this until I realized um, that I think it is saying two things. One, God is unusually present in trouble. Not that he isn't always present. We know that. We teach that. God is omnipresent. There is nowhere where God is not. David helps us with that with another psalm. Wherever I go, you are there. If I go to the heights, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. God is always present, and we are meant to be comforted by that. But God is very present in times of trouble, meaning he's uniquely present. We know him there. So our first point that we need to walk away from from this text is rather obvious. God is present. God's, God is found especially in times of trouble, and God is found in times of trouble in ways that no one else is. He's very present in terms of his normal behavior, but he's also very present in relation to all other relationships. God is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is there for you like no one else is there for you. Well, we look at this. How is he found? So we've, we said, when is he found? He's found very much so in our trouble. How is he found? Or, sorry, when is he found in, in trouble? And there's two senses of trouble here. The one that we more often think about in this text is when God's people are in trouble. He's especially noticeable and helpful when God's people are in trouble. We see this demonstrated in the Old Testament again and again. As a matter of fact, a lot of the commentators in this particular text believe that this was penned during the time of Hezekiah the king when the people of Israel are under threat of attack from Assyria. And Sennacherib's army is outside the gates of Israel. And Hezekiah cries out to God, who has already promised this Assyrian invasion is going to happen. But Hezekiah cries out to God to have mercy. And God does something strange. He wipes out the Assyrian army. As a matter of fact, he sends one angel, which we'll talk about more in a minute, and destroys 185,000 soldiers in one night. So we, that's just one example of 100 examples in the Old Testament specifically in which God is physically present when his people are in trouble. But there's another presence in our text today. And that's when God moves against his enemies. It says he topples them, or he brings devastation, verse 8. He brings devastation. God is present in his people's trouble 
And when his people are attacked by their enemies, he's present. God has a unique presence, and we ought to be comforted by it. Well, it wouldn't be one of my sermons if there weren't a backpacking reference, so here goes. Um, some of you know we, were, we just got back from Pennsylvania a few weeks ago where my family and I got to walk, got to walk for 60 miles with uh, our packs on. Some of you think he had to, you had to walk for 60 miles. No, we got to walk. It was an enjoyable experience. One of the things about planning a trip like that is planning where you're going to get water because guess how much water six people drink in seven days? An amount of water you cannot carry, I assure you. And so we had to have, we had to have fine places where we could get water. Of course, we had to purify it. But we had to have those budgeted throughout the trip. And ideally, and what I tried to do, and we were able to do for the most part on this trip, is to find, not just find water sometime in the day, but for us to be camped by water. There's a number of reasons why we want to do this. Uh, the, the first and most important is just laziness. <laughs> it's much easier to deal with purifying water when your packs are down, your hammocks are strong, the kids are occupied. Um, it's far easier. It's far easier we get to have that nice breakfast fire in the morning because we know we can put it out. Um, so uh, that's the only time we ever have a breakfast fire is when we're near water. Um, but there are other reasons to settle near water. That's sort of a temporary experience for backpackers, but uh, there are tons of reasons for camping and living near water. As a matter of fact, if you look at the oldest cities, including Cincinnati, cities are founded on water, bodies of water, for a reason. For transportation, for vegetation, the soil is better near water, for, um, for drinking, for washing, for bathing, uh, for all of the things that we need in life, civilizations have been founded on bodies of water. Um, and they bring, us, they bring us all the things we need. And the location of that water is super important. So the last night of our, or the, the last night on the trail, or it wasn't the last night, it was middle of the week, we had an evening where uh, we, we got down, we had planned to camp by the water. We're hammock campers, so you got to have trees in order to be up a hammock. So we got down to the water in the woods where we thought there would be trees because water and forest, why wouldn't there be trees? There were not trees. It is really difficult to hang a hammock without trees. So we had to move on. So we went on down a little bit there where we found trees, uh, but the ground was completely covered in, we had trees and water, but the ground was completely covered in poison ivy. And I'm not exaggerating when I say it was the primary ground cover for that campsite, so we couldn't stay there. So we went on down, we found trees, but no water. And then we found water and trees, but guess what? There were already people camping there. So we had to continue to go on to a point where we eventually stopped where there were trees and there was water way down at the bottom of this really steep hill. And that takes multiple trips, so I'm, you know, getting down to the bottom. We had to ask permission because there's another family camping, and so I'm just, by the time I get back up the hill with all the water, I'm just, <gasps> you know. That was a very inconvenient location for water. Shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth. At least we had a place to stay, but that was not a good campsite. And I remember telling the kids, 
uh, as we were eating our dinner, which was really not well, we were just, we were so hungry and so tired so late at night. I told the kids, because I was expecting some, some difficulties in the morning because we couldn't have a morning fire, to say, look, it's cold, the food's bad, and um, we don't get to stay near water, which means we don't get to have a campfire. And when we get up in the morning, we won't have a campfire. So let's just think about it this way. Tomorrow morning, until we get on the trail, is just the continuation of a bad day. <laughs> so the bad day doesn't stop when we go to sleep. It continues on in the morning. But once we hit the trail, it'll be better. Well, then it rained, but that's another story altogether. <laughs> it's a problem with, is the water in a convenient place or not? And I think it's so encouraging in our text when he says there is a river and its streams delight the city of God. There's all kinds of meaning and hope for there, for us. When, when he said there's a river and its streams, that might seem like a strange thing to say. Is it a river or is it a stream? Well, that word stream, is, it can be translated in a number of different ways, but one of the ways it's most often translated in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is, is like a specific location of a spring or a creek that's, that's, that's specific to a place or the current within a stream. But every time that word appears, it is a geographic distinction. It's a location. They went to this stream, this channel, this creek. So when the psalmist says, there is a river whose streams delight the city of God, those, it's talking specifically about the location. The river is in the right place. Now, this week, um, in God's providence, my brother is preaching this same text this morning. So we had a chance to talk about it this week, and, and something he told me, and I didn't, I didn't think about this. If you know the story, we, we said that a lot of commentators think that this uh, might have been penned during the, the Assyrian invasion when King Hezekiah preached, uh, praised to God that he would deliver them from the Assyrians. And one of the ways that God delivers them is that the river that the um, Assyrians were going to block. You remember that story? They rework the river to be in a different location. They dig another trench so that they can survive because they were going to cut off the river. They were going to dam it up and the, the people of Israel wouldn't have survived. And so in God's providence, he worked out a way for that river to move to another place where it would be convenient. That river is God. God present in the right place for his people. The city, the stream is, a, is permanent enough that a city's been built around it. I told you, some of, the, some of the campsites that we would come up on, they were labeled on the map as water sources, but when you got there, the water had dried up. And what's interesting is those campsites show signs that they hadn't been used in a while. So when a, when a, when a, when a creek dries up, people stop using that campsite because there's no reason to camp there anymore. So you, you don't want to build a city next to a stream or a creek that's going to dry up. So when God says there is a river whose streams delight the city of God, he's saying this city, this river is so dependable it will never dry up. And it's so dependable that you can build a city on it that lasts forever. That river is God, and that city is God's people, and he will be present with his people forever. You can count on it, amen? And it says, God is within her. How glorious is it that God would condescend to be present 
with us. We have rebelled against him. Our sin has separated us from him and we would be deserving of all of his wrath. Everyone in here, myself included, Christian or no, everyone has sinned, the Bible says, and everyone is deserving of God's absence. And he would be just and right to leave us. But glory to God, Emmanuel has come. God is with us. Our culture's highest estimation of a friend. What's the highest compliment you can pay to a person as a friend? He is always there for me. We all say that. We all think about it that way. Here's the thing. Can you say that of someone you've just met? Oh, this is my new friend, Charles, and he's always there for me. That makes no sense, right? They need to demonstrate their presence. They need to have been with you through a hard time. Some of my best friends in my life are men that I have served together in the church with where we've been through really, really difficult times together. If you are married in this place, your wife, your husband, knows you better than anyone. And the, the more adversity you experience, the more you grow, grow closer together. That is, a, is the highest measure of friendship. And God, it is said, is a friend who sticks closer than that. He is the God who is there for us. When your job is in jeopardy, God is not absent. He is with you. If you're single and lonely, know that you are not alone. Loneliness and depression are certainly times of trouble, and God is most near in your trouble. He's near in the fellowship of the church. You who are going through trouble, do not walk away from the church. Do not stop coming to church because it seems that God is absent. God is present among his people. Church is where you need to be in times of trouble. It is where God is most palpably present among his people. Don't neglect the meeting together. Continue. But here's a charge to us, church believers. If we are the body of Christ, how are we very present in times of trouble for those around us? When you have a friend who is going through trouble, do you run away? Do you ignore? Do you pretend not to hear? Do you think, oh, someone else will help them? I get, I, as a Christian, a little Christ, we individuals and we the church need to be very present in times of trouble and we are any number of the people in this room have probably countless examples when the church was there for them when the body of Christ was God's very present help in times of trouble so let's be that church together it does not expel fear to know simply that God is present even very present, unless he is capable of doing something about what we hear. So first we saw God is present. Now we're going to see that God is powerful. You knew that already, I'm sure. 
It says that the nations rage and the kingdoms topple. One of the things I'm grateful for in this translation is that word topple, because it appears again and again. Toppling is something that the nations do. Toppling is something that the mountains do. But toppling is something that God does. Not is it toppled, but does the toppling. Nations rage, kingdoms topple. There, there are legitimate forces that move in the world and that do real damage. We saw kingdoms and nations, and we see them today in war and destruction. These are legitimate forces that God is more powerful than. It says the earth melts when he lifts his voice. Now this is an interesting phrase. Sometimes we use the word earth in English to describe the people that live on the planet, but the Hebrew language is a different word for that entirely. This is not that word. The, the word we translate earth here is referring to the ground. It often refers to dirt or soil or land, right? But what's interesting is the word melts, when it's used elsewhere in the Bible, it is never, it always, sorry, it always refers to something people do out of fear. In other words, like collapse or faint or pass out. Every time that word shows up in the Bible, it's referring to a person, except for right here. A person shrieking or passing out in fright, right? And it, it says, the earth melts, the, the land passes out at the sound of his voice. God can do a lot of stuff. God is not just the God of people. He is the God of natural disasters. He is the God of provision. He is the God of plenty. He is the God of everything. God doesn't just work in our relationships. God doesn't just work in the church. God doesn't just work in salvation of the, of the world. He works in a number of different ways, in, in, in every way. Tornadoes do not surprise God. Mudslides, volcanoes, earthquakes, forest fires do not surprise God. And God is not limited by them, but we Everyone you know would die if a volcano were to erupt underneath them. Everyone you know would die under a mudslide. These affect us, but they do not affect God. As a matter of fact, God is the one who is telling them what to do. Jesus demonstrates this for us when he's on the boat in the lake and the storm rises and the the disciples are afraid, and Jesus gets up, and it says he rebukes the storm. He says, knock it off! And it stops, and they marvel, and they say, who is this that even the winds obey his voice? This is God, and there is nothing outside of his ability. And there is nothing that happens, but by his will and for his glory. I'm reminded of the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You may be familiar with this. Um, I love the way C.S. Lewis uses Aslan, the lion, as a picture of God in a, several different ways, but one of the ways in which it is most effective is in this quote, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. 
Whoo, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. <laughs> safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We saw where God is both present in and among his people and in and among his enemies. God is both unequivocally ter terrifying and wholeheartedly good at the same time. He brings irreparable destruction and hides his people under his wings like a mother hen. Only God can do that. He created everything by the words of his mouth. He pronounced and executed judgment on previously immortal humans. And he has done what is necessary to secure our salvation. Nothing is outside of his ability. Are you not yet a follower of Christ? Take up the psalmist's charge. Come and see the works of God. Look around you in this place. The person to your left and to your right is a wondrous work of God. They were created for his glory to have eternal life and God continues to put breath in their body, continues to give them purpose and joy and lasting peace. You are surrounded by the powerful and present works of God. You can find them in the testimony of the person sitting next to you. Who else has the power to bring together people from the nations? It says he's exalted in the nations. That word goyim, meaning the people, uh, the, used to say the word heathen. We don't use that word anymore because it's got all kinds of negative connotations. But these are people against God, God's enemies. Maybe in the Old Testament you think these are non-Jewish people. These are not the people of God. He is exalted among those. Who else could do that but God? And so, when we work, when we do what he's called us to do, when we serve, First Peter 4.11 says we serve with the strength God provides. He gives us that strength to serve him. The psalmist didn't fear natural disaster because of God's presence. Do you think that your family strife is outside of God's power to bring it to an end? Do you think your trouble is greater than a mountain crumbling into the heart of the sea? It isn't. Because God is both present and able, we need not fear. So, like a true Baptist, starts with a P. We can be plucky. There's a word. He says, the psalmist says, we will not be afraid, though, and gives us a list of things that are legitimately terrifying. Mountains crumbling, toppling into the sea. Mountains are mountains because they don't topple. That's what the defining category means. These are things that maybe in this part of the world we don't think about as much of them as, as if you have ever lived or been to a mountainous region where there's that mountain that has been there forever and it's not going anywhere. That's what makes it a mountain. And so the terrifying, what's terrifying is when that mountain explodes. There are parts of the world all over the place where that does in fact happen where the mountain blows its top 
and destructive lava and ash and heat and smoke and fire come out. It's the most terrifying thing that could happen. It's terrifying. But he says, we will not be afraid. Come see the works of the Lord. See what God has already done and be comforted. And then he says this, and you may have been waiting for that sort of old phrase, be still and know that I am God. If you weren't quite figuring it out, this is where it would normally appear. And interestingly enough, the, the translators say, stop your fighting. And you might think, wow, they have really messed with the meaning of that. Actually, um, a lot of us have used that phrase, be still and know, and borrowed, some, um, uh, took, borrowed a page out of Buddhism to say that we are to sort of still ourselves and center ourselves and clear our mind of, of everything but God. That is not what that is saying. We're not called to be centered or to be calm in that spiritual sense. He's talking to all the ones that are fighting. He says, he brings destruction. God does. He makes war cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. Stop your, be still. Quit fighting. He's talking to the armies who continue to fight. Knock it off, like Jesus says to the storm. Stop your fighting and know that I am God. This isn't a frozen in fear. It's not a freaked out stillness. It is a confident stillness. You're calm and trust. And he says, I'm going to be known among the nations. So he, how does he, has he known among the nations? He brings wars to an end. Everyone, even those fought for what we think are good reasons, war is never a good thing. It was never meant to happen, and there will be a day where it will not happen anymore. The Bible tells us that God is going to beat our, plowshare, or beat our swords into plowshares. We're going to do with this world what we were supposed to do, which is to exercise dominion and care and love for it, and to love our neighbor and our God. We will do that again. God's people will. He will bring an end. But it's going to be terrifying before it's over. We're, um, I'm working with my kids on, uh, my older two, um, I remember I was about their age when I received my first pocket knife. And so, as we've been camping and stuff, they've been asking, hey, when, when do I get a pocket knife? So, I've been, I've been looking back on, and I just figured I'd go back to, to what I learned when I was in the Scouts as a kid. So, if you're familiar, if you were in Scouts when you were little, you might remember the whittling chip card. Does anybody remember that? Does anybody remember earning that? Okay, not any scouts in the room. All right. Uh, well, you got this little card, and it had a pledge on it, and you had to memorize the pledge, and then you carried that card with you. And every time your scoutmaster would see you not doing what the card said, they would cut a corner off of your card. Kind of, and after you get all corners, four corners cut off, you've got to start all over again. You've got to go through the class all over again. And so, but the idea with that is we don't, Hopefully, you don't just hand your kid a sharp knife. That just seems ill-advised. If your kids are anything like mine, um, they won't last very long. No. Why, you don't give, why don't you give your kids a sharp knife? Because it's dangerous. It will cut you. But what's interesting is, while you're, while you're learning knife safety, one of the things that, that they say over and over and over again is, a, a safe knife is a sharp knife. Right. My, see, they're learning. 
Uh, a safe knife is a sharp knife. Why? Because you can appreciate how sharp it is. If it's dull, you're like, well, I'll just flip it around, and that's when you really have an accident, right? So at some point in our life, we learn to use knives. We don't, out of fear, just say, I'm never going to use a knife. That's, that makes you know, ste eating steak really difficult. This is a life skill we all need to have, and so we need to, to be patient and train our children how to use them, right? So in the same way, a knife is dangerous, but it's extremely helpful, right? There are situations where a knife could save a life. So we use it with a certain amount of fear. Well, that's not exactly the same thing, but it's very similar to what, um, to what our relationship with God is. He is, as C.S. Lewis puts it, he is a not safe lion, but he is good. You want him to be on your side right? We certainly, nobody wants missiles to exist, but if you, they, they are going to exist, you want them to be yours, right? God is very present in times of trouble for his people. He is on his people's side. He's terrified if he's not. If you are an enemy of God, you should rightly be terrified. It is confidence and courage of the church that has often inspired outsiders to follow Christ. We see this in church history where men and women have faced torture and death for the name and the cause of Christ. The church has historically been a model of this kind of pluck, of this kind of courage. Why? Because they know God's going to bring it to an end and that he is sovereign over all of these things. Christ did not fear anything more than God, which is why he was able to go to his death so peacefully. He says, if at all possible, may this cup pass from me, but may your will be done. And he did it in confidence, knowing that God was doing a good thing, the good thing. We as gospel people can be confident. And here is, here's the good news says, I will be exalted among the nations. I told you the original English word was heathen, those who are opposed to God's people. I will be exalted. God is drawing together a people. You see them sitting next to you in the pews. He could, all the armies that fight, all of us that argue and fight, he could just say, curse to both of you. He could just wipe you out the two armies that are fighting. He could just say, both of you are wrong and both of you I will wipe out. But he does not do that. He could separate himself from us and let us kill ourselves off. But he does not do that. Instead, he is an amazing way of bringing about his exaltation among the people. Instead of bringing destruction on all his enemies, he lifts up his son on a cross to draw men unto himself so that we who were once his enemies might be brought into his family and sheltered under his wings. You who once were enemies of God can be made sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and children and can rest under his wings because he is a very present help in times of trouble. Let's praise him. Lord, thank you 
You are indeed known and felt in our trouble. And Lord, I pray that in your loving kindness, that everyone in this room, if they have not yet known your presence, would know it in their trouble, whatever that trouble may be. I pray that you would draw us near to yourself, remind us of your love and your presence, and encourage us to be faithful to all the things you've called us to do, most notably, to see your name exalted among the nations. Be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.
going to watch a video real quickly. If you don't know the Richard family, you're going to get a seat for, them for a few minutes. So we'll grab a seat. Let's watch this video together. What's your favorite thing about the food in Buenos Aires, Kinley? Um, the meat, because it's really juicy. Mm. What about you, Hannah? guys moved to Argentina? Because we want to tell people that God is a good person and that he made things and we can make churches. Could you do that in Kentucky? Yes. So why did you move to Argentina then? Because in Kentucky there are already a lot of churches and you can't be a missionary in Kentucky because you already live there. And the real part of being a missionary is going to another place where they don't know much about Jesus and they're sharing about Jesus. Then they can go to other places and that really fast. So do people in Argentina, do they sometimes come from places other than America? Yeah. Like where? Well, some people come from China. Some people come from Pakistan. Some person, one person comes from Ukraine. One of our friend teaches us from Cool. So you're saying that you can share the gospel with somebody in Argentina and they can move somewhere else to be a missionary somewhere else? That's pretty cool. We felt that God was calling us to go somewhere else other than Kentucky to share the gospel, to help others know who God is, and to make God known amongst people that don't know him. And so... When we prayed about it, it led us here to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And when we got here, we realized there's three million people here. And I think there's like 2.5 or more million people, two and a half or more million people that don't know Jesus. So there's a lot of people here who still need to hear the gospel, who still need to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them that they may follow him. We both have been involved in missions in, in more short-term trips and even international mission trips. And um, I, I feel like the Lord gave us both uh, the desire to travel, the love of travel. I think that's important. Uh, I think people who don't love to travel, maybe that's not their calling to be a missionary in another country. But we, we had that, uh, I don't know, hobby, I guess, but we also had that experience in, in having short-term mission trips and uh, internationally as well, and so um, we, we just felt like we could do the work that we were doing in Kentucky, but in a different location where, where there's less Christians and a lot more non-Christians, more people who need to, to hear the gospel and we can not only share with those who are unbelievers, but we can help churches. We can come alongside churches, encourage them, and, uh, and do the work we were doing in Kentucky just in another place. Well, uh, as they've said, uh, they can do the work they're already doing in Kentucky somewhere else. 
Well, we're still here. So we got work to do in Kentucky. So uh, here in a moment, we're going to take up our, our, our offering as is our custom. That, that is in part, of, that is part of our effort as a church to be doing the work of the ministry here. That money goes toward things like uh, mission trips, that goes toward things like uh, VBS uh, and different things. So uh, be mindful of that as we, as we give as an act of worship. Uh, just a few uh, reminders, announcements. Uh, if you look at your bulletin here, um, we've got a movie night coming up this, this Friday, July 14th at 8.30. Here is a fantastic opportunity to invite your one. Who doesn't like going to see a movie, right? So we're going to be showing a movie here outside, so that'd be a great thing. I encourage you to invite somebody to that. Um, and... Um, you can see the rest of the announcements here. We do have, it doesn't on here, we do have Gospel to Every Home today at 4 o'clock. There's a great opportunity for you to, to, to do, do the work of the ministry here, to share the gospel with those who haven't heard it here. So I encourage you to come out um, at 4 o'clock, and we'll go uh, knock on some doors. Uh, that being said, let me pray for us uh, for our, over our offering. And uh, so let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for uh, help, letting us be a part of what you're doing. Help us to be faithful, to invite our friends, our one, uh, and, and to, to having a gospel conversation, and to, having, uh, uh, to, to coming to church with us. Lord, help us to be faithful in that. Help us to be faithful givers. As we uh, give, we pray that we would do so with cheerful hearts, that you would take what we give, and that you would use it for your glory. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Sing him for the glory of the risen 